That was Ellie Goulden there with your song, and we've been joined by Daniel Mumby. And Good we're morning. Ready to start the movie 90 minutes, not yeah. movie hour. So you're getting a whole football match's worth without having to pay a penny or lift a finger. Should, should we ask uh, Lionheart for £250,000 a week wages, like most footballers? <laughs> <laughs> so long as they don't sack us after just a couple of years. <laughs> I think I'd take that. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, I think we'll just get straight into it, really. Um, the UK's top ten is as follows. At number ten, we have The American. Which is um, a visually interesting uh, kind of throwback to the existential thrillers of the 60s and 70s, particularly the work of Michelangelo Antonioni and Go and Get the Passenger on DVD if you haven't seen it. I mean, I like George Clooney when he's being kind of dark as opposed to just suave, hey, I'm George and I'm really attractive. Um, like on them coffee adverts. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and it's not coffee advert, Georgia. I think the film is riddled with cliches, and like I say, it is in the end a throwback rather than anything more substantial. But Anton Corbin has greatness in him as a director, so you you should go and see it if you can. Right. At uh, number nine, we have No Problem, which is a Bollywood film, uh, which wasn't press screen like a lot of Bollywood films are. So I don't know, basically, and it will probably be out of the top ten next week. So yeah. we didn't spend too much time on it. If anyone knows anything about it, or just just fire through a quick summary. Yeah, one word uh, review via email would be great. Yeah, um, just read the numbers out. It's 07961771073 for text or lineupreader.com for the email. And at number eight, we have Somewhere. Which is the new film from Sophia Coppola, Sophia Coppola, who is, of course, the daughter of Francis Ford. And it's, by all accounts, a kind of partial return to form after Marie Antoinette, which I wasn't that keen on. I think that there have been... There's been some complaints about it saying that it, it is essentially languid navel-gazing and like a lot of Coppola's work, it doesn't really know how to end. But I think that... Coppola is visually stylish in the same, not quite in the same way that her father's was, but she does know where to put the camera, and I think it's probably worth seeing for the performances, if not much else. Yeah, I think it's. it's I do. I always like when an actor comes back, um, you know, because it's a, if you think of the Mickey Rock situation, and yeah, um, and Quentin Tarantino, you kind of give John Travolta a second break. Then John Travolta went, went a bit nuts yeah. with the old Scientology thing. Um, <laughs> I read something the other day saying Johnny. Uh, I almost said Johnny Depp. John Travolta is the Hollywood equivalent of a cockroach. No matter how much bad stuff happens, he keeps coming back. <laughs> and it's just, uh... Which is flattering, frankly, considering some of the films he's made. It's back on the compliment, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> um, yeah, so Stephen Dorff, I th it's good to see actors come back, because you think... They can't just go from being a good actor, well, he was never good, but, you know, like, an, an okay actor to being horrifically bad, so it's good to see him coming back. Yeah, and um, I don't have anything against the man, I think he's pretty good. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I mean, I'd, such, certainly I'd much rather he turned up in these sort of films than the Neva Ball films, which he did when he was at his low ebb. Yes, with Tara Reid. Yes. <laughs> the acting powerhouse that is. <laughs> Christian Slater. <laughs> oh, Christian Slater, what went wrong there? No, there's so much wood in that room. <laughs> Uh, at number seven, we have the greatest monster film you'll ever see. Beasts everywhere. <laughs> yes. On a weight. Massive, <laughs> massive amounts of gore, no bloodsuckers and so forth. Okay. Monsters, we're talking about the Gareth Edwards film, which is a monsters film which isn't really about the monsters in it. I mean, it, it's made on a budget of half a million dollars, half a million pounds rather, sorry, because we're in Britain. Uh, and it's, it has the same kind of political undercurrents that District 9 had. Of course, this isn't black, this isn't backed by, uh, Peter Jackson. It doesn't have, um, you know, native New Zealand talent at the helm. 
But I think that I'm very glad that it's taken so much money on next to nothing. I think Gareth Edwards is going to be a director to watch. If you go and see it as a kind of conventional splatter fest or, you know, kind of a monster movie in the manner of, for instance, Cloverfield, I think you might be disappointed. But if you want something a bit more thought-provoking, then check it out. Yeah, if you just want lots of stuff growing smash, then you missed your chance because Skyline was out a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, we expected that, though, didn't we? Because well, after Monsters came into the top ten, there was no excuse to see Skyline. Well, that's one so you got away with it. Yeah, there's one thing where it's, um as you were saying last week, it's the, the trailers and maybe the marketing has kind of twisted it a bit in that a film like this was it was a trailer during the film Skyline, so if you went to see Skyline, you might think, oh, that looks quite, that'll be my next film. And it's just different audiences. Yeah, I mean, I would even bet that a lot of people went, you know, paid to see Skyline, sat down, saw the trailers for Monsters and then left. <laughs> thinking, yeah, you know what, I'll just wait. People used to do that, didn't they, when, like, say, the new Star Wars trailer came out. People would just go to see, um the trailer, pay it and then leave, because it would be during some other, and it was the, they had the trailer for Star Trek, that, when that was out last year, or two years ago, sorry, people were just going to see that. And then yeah, leave. I mean, that happens all the time, they, they, they recently showed the first trailer of uh, Kenneth Branagh, Kenneth Branagh's, Kenneth Branagh, <laughs> uh, his uh, adaptation of Thor, and people queued up to see that. I mean, I think that was going to be actually a rather interesting film, because Kenneth Branagh, when he's behind, when he's in front of the camera, he's kind of hit and miss, when he's behind it, he's a bit nuts in the best possible way. I think that film is either going to be the greatest film or the worst film. I, I think it's going to be completely polar opposite opinions, I think. Well, it comes out, I think, in 2012, so we shall get back to you if we're still here. Yes. <laughs> and number six, we have a Judith. Uh, the Hangover 2 is currently being filmed in Thailand. That's going to be released next summer. If you're a Robert Downey Jr. fan, you might get away with seeing it, but otherwise, no excuse. If you want to see him play a, essentially a really, really evil character, he has very little redeeming features. He's very nasty and to, to, the, to Zach all the way through it and his wife, and uh, it's just. Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, he just has a. He just has no redeeming features, and they just wonder why he would pick that, because it didn't really, it didn't do much for him in terms of... Because you've seen Due Date, haven't you? Yeah. There's been some controversy recently over a scene in which, because um, I haven't seen the film, I can't um, pin it down, where he hits a child. Can you remember that scene? Yeah, it was really funny. I'm sorry, but that it was it was one of the highlights of the film, unfortunately, and that's that's that doesn't okay. bode, bode too well. But basically, this it's it, like the kids are annoying him and stuff like that, and and it it kind of goes back to the point that he has no redeeming features. He's just he's that sort of person that will hit a child and <laughs> thinks that that's the only solution he has to hit this child. And I suppose it's better to hit it than lead it away with lollipops and you know, lock them up in a cage. But yeah, it's borderline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're a Robert Downey Jr. fan and you don't want to spend seven pounds, go and what is still one of his finest performances in Chaplin, the Richard Attenborough film. It's a flawed film, but he is brilliant in mm. that. And at number four, no, five, sorry, uh, we have Unstoppable. I'll defer to you because you've seen it. It's basically, it's a runaway train film. It's just, it doesn't ask you to bring a lot of brain power to it. Just lots of great special effects and, and good old-fashioned stuntman work as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously bits of CGI when there's a bit where the, the tree hit, hits the big curve and that's like the big plot point and there's, you can tell the CGI Spoiler. used there. there. Um, but it, the rest of it is just, it just, it kind of reminds me of the films from my childhood like Lethal Weapon and like anything from the 90s with just proper stuntmen and you just think someone's actually doing that and it's just, that adds a little bit of a, you still know to film that, it just adds that little bit of wow factor. Yeah, I was watching um, the Mad Max films again recently because they were being shown over a few nights on ITV and you, you easily forget how good they are as action films because mm -hmm. people kind of write about them in terms of their political undercurrents and they have got very good political substance, well the first two have anyway, yeah. the, once Tina Turner comes in and the third one it kind of goes a bit downhill but um 
there's this brilliant, all the brilliant chases, particularly in the second one, the Road Warrior, where it's very, in, looking at it now, it's quite obviously wire work, mm -hmm. in the sense there's a guy when you have two cars crashing and a guy kind of flips end over end over end over end and then lands in a ditch and you think, yeah, that's done with wires, but you know what, I don't care because I'm yeah. having so much fun. Mm -hmm. Not, uh, it's good and uh, you get great performances from Chris Payne and Denzel Washington. Um, Denzel Are they making the second Star Trek film? Is that coming up? I think it is, yeah. It's, um... I'm not sure when, that's probably, probably looking 2013 or something like that. Right. Um, but I'm trying to think whether I've seen, you might be able to jump straight in with a couple of examples, whether Denzel Washington's made a bad film. Um, well there was that time travel film that he made, uh, a few years ago. Ah, oh, Deja Vu. Yes. That was, that was, it was watchable. It was not like, I wouldn't class it as a bad film. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think he's ever made any absolute stinkers. No, I don't uh, think so. Um, and he always makes his money back in the box office as well, so... Yeah, he is very bankable. I mean, I still think his best performance is American Gangster, the Ridley Scott film, where he's playing the gangster Fran Lucas. Mm -hmm, definitely. And, yeah. And, well, what number are we number? That was five. Number four, Megamind. Uh, Despicable Me is finally out of the top ten. Right. Uh, <laughs> not that I have any <laughs> grudge to bear against it. I mean... This is the kind of film that makes you realise how good Despicable Me was, and it's, you know, a massively derivative effort from DreamWorks. I don't understand why Brad Pitt's doing it. I mean, it's... I read something the other day about how... Because Brad Pitt and Angelina obviously, you know, well, not married strictly, but they're together, and they have this arrangement where if one of them's working, the other has to look after the kids. So you can imagine it as a sort of tag team effort as she did the tourist and then came back, and he wanted off to do this, and you think, you might have used your time a bit more wisely. <laughs> Definitely. I think he, they must come back to each other and, like, yeah, she, she must go... Well, that was a waste of time. You go uh, salt, <laughs> and I think just have that back and forth. <laughs> that's what all the that's why all the stuff is ending up in the National Enquirer because they're just arguing about each other's films. It's got nothing to do with custody of the kids. <laughs> just go. Oh, you made salt. I'm going to make something equally as bad. <laughs> and at number three, Tomb Raider. <laughs> at number three, we have the tourist, which is dumb, dumb, and dumb again. And you know, brings us on nicely because we were just talking about Angelina Jolie. It's you no. Know, a thriller about mistaken identity with Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie basically hanging around waiting to get paid and Stephen Burkhoff is chewing the scenery playing the villain. It, it's just a bit odd, frankly. I mean, it's it's one of those films where I, I've got nothing against films that are dumb and know they're dumb. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly there, there are elements of The Tourist where you think, well, maybe it's aware of how stupid it is and how kind of cliched it is and maybe it does just want to kind of appeal to the kind of the 12 a audience that it's designed. I mean, it's directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark who made The Lives of Others and he's kind of gone the same way as, um, um, as a filmmaker called Wolfgang Peterson who started off as a very kind of interesting art house filmmaker and then went to Hollywood and made lots of fluff, a bit like Vin Vendors did mm. after Until the End of the World and Wings of Desire. Uh, I don't think there's any real reason to see it in the cinemas. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, unless you're looking for something like Unstoppable to turn your brain off to. Yeah, it's, it, and it's the, just not worth it. The trailer just looks to me as if the, 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 the market and people just went, aren't they dreamy? Look at him, look at her, that's enough. <laughs> it's just it's, like, it's like, no, I need a bit more. Yeah. I, that's where you could just look at pictures of them and save yourself the seven pound. It's just yes. bizarre. Um, anyway, and number two. Oh, incidentally, just before sorry. we move on, um. The Golden Globe nominations came out this week, I don't know if you were aware of that, and, um, I mean, I've always not paid much attention to awards because I think that they're always given to a certain kind of film. This year is proof that the Golden Globes are completely out of touch because The Tourist has been nominated for Best Picture, Musical or Comedy. And that kind of shows you how out of touch they are. <laughs> yes, it's, uh... It's worrying that these people have so much power in the industry as well. Yeah, they're not at that point. It's the Foreign Press Association in Hollywood. So, but the thing about the Golden Globes is they're kind of seen as being the first indicators for the Oscars, which means we're all doomed. <laughs>
<laughs> yes, uh, um, number two, which uh, we thought was going to be number one until the end of time, but it's not. It's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One, which is good. I mean, there's some discussion as to whether or not it's better than Prisoner of Azkaban. I haven't seen um, Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix, or any of the others up until this point because I've only seen the first three, so I can't comment. I think that it's that's probably unlikely though, because Alfon what Alfonso Cuarón did with that film is that he came into a franchise which had been essentially a kind of pedestrian very kind of anodyne kids fair and he injected this kind of wonderful mythical sense of darkness which you know later made children of men so fantastic mm -hmm. i mean i think it's it's interesting that we have a blockbuster here which is despite the fact that it's a franchise status and so therefore it would take so much money the fact that it's continued to take money given that it's so kind of downbeat yeah and like you're saying so kind of drained out it's not the sort of film you'd watch like you say at three o'clock on a saturday afternoon during a barbecue yeah and uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that you know, it's. It's. I mean, it's. It doesn't quite merit comparison with The Dark Knight, although that is a not a brilliant film by any means. It, it's. It's doing the same kind of thing. If people are going to see, it despite the fact that it's not a fun ride. Yeah, it's um as well. The it's not really got. There's you get the odd critic who'll just give it five out of five, but they give everything five out of five because they're kind of happy that they get all the like, Harry Knowles on it. <laughs> <laughs> have a. Uh, have like a pat on the back, you know, from all the, and they get all the freebies from the film studios. But it's, I mean, it's been getting like, uh, some really bad reviews as well. But it, that kind of proves that people, because of what it is, because of the behemoth that is Harry Potter, people will just go and see it anyway. Even if this got a zero out of five rating, people would still go and see it. It is critic proof. Yeah. I think that's the phrase um, we're searching for. Yeah, uh, and, I don't, and I don't have any problem with it taking so much because I'd rather that this was taking money than Michael Bay's latest film, which is coming out next summer, which shall not be named. Is that the T three? Yes, which then rips, which then steals its title from a certain Pink Floyd album, which I value very closely. <laughs> yes, I've uh, I've seen the trailer. Or for half steals. Have it, you seen the trailer for it? I have restrained myself from seeing it. I'm, you I'm should gonna... watch the trailer because it's just like. Is oh, it terrible? It's, it's you should just think what they're doing. There's no, there's not a lot of robots in it. It's a, it must be they've tried to go for the teaser trailer to put a little different spin because everyone's seen robots smashing each other up mm -hmm. so they thought let's do something a little bit different and it don't work it doesn't work one little bit <laughs> so right. i think i'll abstain until the first proper trailer comes out and then i will decide for myself yes and a number one another behemoth of franchise well it's not not in the same sort of league but based on a popular book air uh, chronicles of narnia which voided the dawn treader and it's by all accounts the weakest of the narnia films i mean michael apted who directed things like um gorillas in the mist and the world is not enough he's a much more kind of nuts and bolts workman-like director than andrew adamson who made the first two films also made the shrek the first two shrek films incidentally which are the best of the shrek series mm -hmm. i mean it has a there are interesting elements in it i mean it has a couple of interesting cgi set pieces and i think that in general the christian morality at the center of the c.s lewis stories they've been handled quite well in the book in the films mm -hmm. i mean you were saying you were bored by the first one yeah it's uh it, well it was you were getting on i'm sure it was like two hours 40 minutes and it felt it was a bit too it, long yeah. i'll give you that but in terms but in terms of how it handled the themes there wasn't anything there weren't any scenes in the first one in which you thought that's been put in to market it to the far right in america i suppose no no nothing like, i think it's kind of i think maybe it was pitched a bit younger audience than me in the terms of certificate when they have the entirely surprising the battle scenes and stuff like that my mind kind of thinks well it's no lord of the rings it's no braveheart you know and so it, you kind of <sighs> don't put lord of the rings and braveheart in the same but do you know what i mean just, just, just battles um and just like just thought 
you just thought, when you saw the battle, you thought, none of them kids is going to get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, <laughs> I kind of took a bit of the edge of it. Yeah, I mean, it is Lord of the Rings light, and like I say, it is the weakest of the films. I think if you've seen the first two and you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, go and see it. Otherwise, if you're a Lewis fan, go and watch Shadowlands again, because that's Richard Attenborough's best film. Yes. What we'll do is we will, uh, rather controversially, we will put some music on. Some music <laughs> on a film programme? Impossible. Yeah. We'll play uh, a bit of David Bowie, and then we'll be back with the cult of film of the week, which is... As this week, The Muppet Christmas Carol. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. You're listening to Cool Jazz on Lionheart Radio. <laughs> Not really. It's uh, that was a bit of David Bowie there, and we're back with the rest of the movie extravaganza yeah, in 90 minutes. 90 minute Christmas special because yes. we're not here again until the 6th of January. So yes. the 8th of January. So. Yes, the 8th, yes. Uh, the cult film of the week is A Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, what I mean, it, we're bending the rules obviously because that it did manage to make its money back uh, the first time around and therefore it's not strictly a cult film. But because it's Christmas we thought, no, why not? <laughs> so a bit of background first. It was the first Muppet film to be made after the tragic death of Jim Henson in 1989. Um, have you seen Into the Night, by the way? No. John Landis film in which he, he turns up very briefly in, in an on-screen cameo without the Muppets. He, 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 he turned up very briefly, but we'll talk about that in yeah. the new year because it's a very good film. Um, this is, because uh, immediately after um, uh, Jim Henson passed away, the Disney company essentially got involved with the Muppet brand and basically slowly took it over. So they bought the rights first to the name and then after the success of, the sort of success of this film to the characters. Right. And this is generally considered to be the best of the post-Henson era films, in the sense, you know, Muppet Treasure Island, which came after this, is perfectly fine, but after that, you eventually get them kind of running out of steam and you end up with the Muppets Wizard of Oz, which is just pedestrian and badly directed. <laughs> it's directed by Brian Henson, who's the son of Jim Henson, and it's, it's kind of notable as a, a passing of the torch moment. There was a story surrounding a puppeteer called Steve Whitmore, who does, um, the voices, I think he originally, he was the original voice of Fuzzy Bear, and he's, I mean, he's still working today. And he was asked by uh, Brian Henson, who was directing the film, to take over the voice of Kermit the Frog, mm -hmm. which had traditionally been done by Henson himself. And he kind of rang and said, oh, I'm not sure what I want to do this. And then he alleges, his story goes that basically Henson appeared to him in a dream and said, basically, I want you to do this, you have my blessing. And then he said, okay, I'll, I'll do it and sign on. I mean, I don't think you can tell the difference between yeah. the voices just by watching the film unless you're kind of, you know, a voice um, actor, a fictionado, which I'm not. Mm -hmm. I should put that out there. Um, so, I mean, there's no, there's not much point sorry if I can speak properly today. there's not much point recapping the plot of A Christmas Carol because I think pretty much everyone listening will know the story they should do yeah yeah um, and besides we, we are a little bush for time because we've got so much new releases to talk about so it's worth saying I think that a couple of things first of all the original Dickens story which is kind of held up as a masterpiece it was actually written as a pot boiler it was one of Dickens Dickens himself kind of thought it was one of his lesser tales that he'd kind of written just to keep a bit of money coming in and mm -hmm. in those days of course um, stories of any significant length were serialized in you know a couple of chapters at a time in a newspaper so it was a source of regular income for a writer and the status of Dickens story kind of grew over the years it wasn't something that was a bit at the time in terms of uh, this film, it's actually quite close to the Dickens original. I mean, there are no rubber chicken factories in the original version. <laughs> Let's make that clear. But other than, and no, they change a couple of the names around and so forth. But otherwise, I think, you know, in terms of an adaptation, it's pretty faithful. Yes. So here's, sorry, were you going to say no, no, no. <clears throat> Just agreeing with you. <laughs> right, so here's, here's the obviously good stuff about it. First of all, I love the Muppets. Mm -hmm. I, I think the Muppets, if certainly if you're a young kid of, you know, I don't know, 
younger than 11 or 12, you'd be hard-pushed to hate the Muppets because there's always at least one character in them you can fall in love with. I mean, who was your favourite Muppet character when you were younger? For me, it was Gonzo. Yes. I, the one, I, I, I don't get the whole Miss Piggy thing, though. I don't, I find her a bit annoying. <laughs> but I suppose that's part of our charm, really, isn't it? Well, yeah. So yeah. she's so oppressive on, <laughs> enforces herself on Kermit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, because... Yeah, I, I do agree with you on that. Sense. I mean, there's obviously that bit in Mother Treasure Island where she's, you know, what's, what's the name of her character? Is it Boom Shakalaka? <laughs> and, uh, my name is Spat. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, my favourite character, I think, was Kermit followed by uh, Animal, but that's only because I have an interest in drumming and mm -hmm. he's sort of based on Keith Moon. So, in terms of that, I love the Muppets and there is, there is always a kind of charm of seeing them on screen, you know, the fact that you know that they're not being done by CGI to the point at which you can see those little kind of sticks with the red balls on where mm -hmm. people are kind of manipulating. So, you know it's a person with, you know, the hand inside the sock and you know that it's real and, and that, that kind of creates a kind of nostalgic feel to it. In terms of the human performances, I actually think Michael Caine is one of the best Scrooges. I don't know where you stand on that. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was quite, I, I, well, I've just watched it, it will be Thursday I watched it, um, just to get prepared for the show, and I haven't seen it before, and I thought, is he... That surprises me, because it's always on television. Yeah, I, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's just not been on the radar, and I just wondered whether he'd be upstaged by, but he, I don't know, he, he was, he was just, the standout star by a male. Yeah. I know you, that sounds a bit bonkers because he's the only real male lead, uh, human lead in it, uh, but you know what I mean, because I just thought they make it overpowered by them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a Michael, I'm a bit biased because I'm a Michael Caine fan, but if you look at his career, he's made, he's gone, th I mean, we think of him now as a very kind of reliable, bankable star now that he's gone involved with Christopher Nolan, mm -hmm. um, and no, rightfully so because they make some very good films together, but if you look at his career, it's kind of like, he has moments of brilliance when he's, you know, doing stuff like Get Carter and Alfie and uh, The Man Who Would Be King and so forth. Mm -hmm. But then there's long periods when he's rubbish. I mean, there's a famous story that when he won the Oscar for Hannah and Her Sisters, the Woody Allen film, he couldn't accept it because he was in the Bahamas filming Jaws 4. And that's the, <laughs> the perfect kind of juxtaposition. On the one hand, he's a brilliant actor. On the other hand, he makes really rubbish choices. And aside from a BAFTA win for uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Steve Martin, which is a very good mm -hmm. comedy, he hadn't really been in the spotlight since Hannah and Her Sisters. And this is largely credited as being the kind of the start of the very long comeback, which led to his second Oscar for The Science. House rules. I mean, there's so many different ways to approach the character of Scrooge because he is, he's, he's not just a miser, he's kind of much more kind of multifaceted and it's a question of do you play up the grumpiness like George C. Scott did, do you play on the sort of the spendthriftiness like Alistair Sim did in the 1950s version or do you do what Michael Caine does here which is essentially, I mean it's a use certificate film so there's nothing massively kind of offensive or creepy or twisted in it, mm -hmm. but it's it's just a kind of well-rounded sort of portrayal which takes account of the, the miserliness, but there's also the, the great potential for innocence. My favourite memory of the film when I was younger was um, there is a scene early on when they're in the offices of Scrooge and Marley and all the Muppets are beavering away on the books and yeah. they come crowding into the office and asking for an extra shovel full of coal for the <laughs> fire. They're singing, our assets are frozen! <laughs> and Michael King's kind of hunched over and he goes, how would the bookkeeping staff like to be suddenly unemployed? <laughs> Had to lean back on his <laughs> And the first time I saw that I thought, I love this guy, this is fantastic. And obviously going around shouting that now it's probably quite insensitive because <laughs> the economic climate that in, but when you're four years old, it's the greatest thing you've ever There's, heard. And the, the, the rats have a good comeback where the next scene of the all went like, uh, who's my island <laughs> in the sun? <laughs> oh, it's really warm here. <laughs> but I think another early, early joke in there which sort of uh, had me had me laughing my head off was uh, they were saying, oh, we'd, we'd like Christmas, uh, it's Christmas tomorrow, and he was like, he goes, 
He goes, I want you only eight in the it's Christmas. He goes, I was, all right, half eight. <laughs> <laughs> There's little things like that. I mean, the thing with the Muppets is that they ha with this version, you have essentially, rather than the Muppets playing characters, so to speak, you have a question of, okay, we've got this batch of puppets. Mm -hmm. Which character can we put where? So you've got um, Gonzo as Charles Dickens, actually calling himself Charles Dickens, and there's the whole thing about um, dramatic irony. The author knows what's going to happen exactly before. So at the start, he says, no, Scrooge is going to come around this corner. Where? There. Where? <laughs> now. And then he just walks <laughs> on screen. Um, you've got, it's the first of the Muppet films which has a double act between him and uh, Rizzo, which would later carry over into Muppet Treasure Island, of course. Mm -hmm. um, you've got uh, Fozzy Wig as... Um, Standing at, well, the character in the original book is called Fezziwig, I think, or something, but no, it's he mm -hmm. runs the rubber chicken factory where Scrooge gets his first job. You've got Kermit playing Bob Cratch and a Miss Piggy, his wife, which is kind of thing of, it was sort of always going to happen, but I just didn't think we'd get it so, so, uh, so easily. Here's the thing, there are other good things about it as well, apart from the fact that, you know, the charm of the performers and so forth, there are creepy elements to it. I mean, for a use certificate film, obviously it's not creepy in the way that we'd react as a kind of, <gasps> Yeah. That sort of thing. But there are things in it which if you're a young... Well, certainly if you're a young boy, you'll react to, like, um, the moment when Scrooge goes back to his home and you see the doorknob in a... I don't know what, what kind of... It looks like CGI, but it could easily be organic as well, where the doorknob changes into the face of um, Jacob Marley, played mm -hmm. by um, one of Statler and Waldorf, and then it screams at him. And... When you're a young kid, that's quite freaky. And similarly, when they come up from the cellar and start dancing with the chains, mm -hmm. it's quite... I, I mean, thought the, the Ghost of Christmas Future was particularly... Yeah, um, because... Weird. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing with the ghost is that the ghost kind of sums up what's good and bad about the film, because... Did, let me give you a point of comparison. Did you see the recent version of A Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey and directed by Robert Zemeckis? No, I avoided that because it was apparently... Tosh. <laughs> I, I saw it. It's, it's not Tosh. It, it's kind of fatally flawed. And uh, I saw it in a freezing cold cinema, which probably didn't help matters. <laughs> and it certainly didn't need to be in 3D. But the thing about that film was that it was that it kind of started off quite reasonably and then was inappropriately dark in the sense that when Marley's ghost appears to Scrooge in that version, his tongue actually falls off. And then you get um, the Ghost of Christmas Future scenes of Scrooge being chased through the streets by what looks like the carriage out of Sleepy Hollow, mm -hmm. despite the fact that there's a PG certificate. And you think, okay, are we in the <laughs> same film? Uh, quite apart from the fact that no, there's all sorts of accusations about motion capture being creepy and so forth. Um, but the thing with this film is that there are kind of, there's a, a general kind of warm, nostalgic, family-friendly tone, but there are dark elements in it. The way that they do the ghosts in this one is the Ghost of Christmas Past is... It's like a floating child, which reminded me of those kind of um, L.S. Lowry paintings of Manchester, you know, the kind of the, uh, the little dots of people around factories. That freaks me out, that little girl ghost. She's, she's not that bad. I mean, it's a it's, a it's a bit weird for a used certificate, isn't it? It's a bit like, if I, I, the thing kind of reminded me of was the, the ring films. <laughs> I just I thought, that's stretching I thought it was out. a bit... She's oh. not Sadako. <laughs> she doesn't walk backwards at any point. And she doesn't come out of a well and you know, start saying, you know, Copy this videotape or you will die. <laughs> um, so I think that's well done. The Ghost of Christmas Future, like you say, is very... I mean, it does look like a ring race, despite mm -hmm. the fact that it predates Lord of the Rings by eight or nine years. And it certainly the whole idea of doing... I like the idea of Christmas Future not being able to speak and just, you know, these kind of deep breaths and gesture, because that does convey things very well. The problem with the film is rooted, however, in The Ghost of Christmas Present, which is essentially a large Muppet with a red beard. And... It's rather toe-curling. I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah, it just, it, it was, I thought it was a little bit annoying, uh, yes. but... Come in uh, and know me better, man. Shut up. Uh, and then just then, <laughs> suddenly, the end, he just started aging. I know that that's 
like based on the book, but just like it was just like it wasn't explained. I just thought, hang on, his hair's not uh, ginger anymore; it's white. Oh, oh, right. And then they just it just it was a, such a such a switch uh, swift change. It was just a bit weird. Yeah, I mean, if you talked about that to creators, they say, oh, he ages during the flashback. Yeah. Like, okay, you could have showed it on screen. It would have been nice. I mean, if they yeah. Well, I was, well, I say as well. Uh, I was quite surprised when I, I sat and watched it. I thought that the ghost would be played by well-known Muppets. You know what I mean? But mm. they're all kind of all new ones. Yeah, I mean, I think there's bits of, um, what's the name of the Muppet, who's one of the band, I can't remember, there, there are there are familiar touches in The Ghost of Christmas mm. Present, but I think it's interesting that this is one of the first Muppet films to actually focus on the human performers, mm. rather than anything else. There are also little, interest. there are also kind of little scenes like, um, not creepy scenes, but nice fun scenes, where you have the penguins ice skating. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's a set piece, but it's a good fun set piece, and you've got the, uh, the carol singer who gets thrown out, you've got... Dr. Bunsen Honeydew and Beaker as the charity collectors who mm. get uh, thrown out. And, now, Beaker is just lovable, <laughs> isn't he? Especially when he's kind of hiding behind his scarf. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's all singing, all dancing today. I'm just doing all the voices. I just, uh, yeah, one, just to go back to what you said about the, the portrayal of Scrooge and say, because it could just be, a lot of them are just like, oh, he's angry and he's just tight and he's just... But there was a bit where they haven't, he goes to his, he visits his nephews and having their Christmas party and they have a guessing game and they're on about, and basically realises that Everyone hates him. Yeah, and that you just like, and that kind of, rather than just like him suddenly think it, you just you just felt really sorry for this lonely old man, mm. and that was I just thought it was a, a good, I don't know, just added something a bit different to me. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there are faults with the film in the sense that there there are moments like all the bits of Christmas Carol, the the coast of Christmas present bit is the hardest to do in a way because that's where you have to get the Scrooge transition in. Because by the time you get to Christmas Future, he's already sort of afraid that he's going to die or that, no, there's the kind of, mm. the, the feeling of setting up Tiny Tim. And when they do it in this version, they have that song, uh, Bless Us All, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, the songs in general are quite good, but that's sort of a weak one. And then it's followed by a guy coughing. And as you know from film conventions, if someone coughs, they're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just, that's the way it goes. True. Um, so I think that there, it's a bit kind of creaky when it gets to that. There are also... Um, little sections of it early on where it, it feels slightly kind of ropey. I mean, there's a wonderful opening section where it glides over the rooftops and you think, okay, that's obviously a model shot and now they're going to cut to the, to the street. Mm -hmm. And then it actually zooms down and you think, you actually built the whole thing of that and that's quite impressive. That's what I'm saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's good that it's filmed, it looks like it's like an old-fashioned sort of thing filmed on a big soundstage. And I know that has to be because basically the floor will have to be raised up so the Muppeteers are underneath. Yeah. There's like a fake floor, but it just you just thought... It was good, like, no, no real CGI, no, um, it wasn't like outdoor locations, it was just, just on a set and it just kind of felt like, a bit like a, a, a really, really brilliant pantomime, so to speak. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it in the sense that it's not supposed to be, I mean, there are versions of Christmas Carol that you should take seriously, like the Alistair Sim version, like the George C. Scott version. I mean, with George C. Scott's version you haven't got a choice because he's just so grumpy all the mm -hmm. time. Although I like George C. Scott very much. Um, there is... With this version, it's very much a case of something to kick back to, rather than anything to involve it. I mean, it does do the morality of the story fairly well, and I like the scene at the end where, um, you know, Scrooge has changed and he's got the turkey and he's following all the people around to kind of deliver presents, and then he stops outside Cratchit's house and pretends to be his old self, yeah. only to reveal that he's going to pay off Bob Cratchit's mortgage to give him a big raise and so forth. There was a bit of a really, uh, just like little harsh touches, I thought, that, like the, one, the, the little... Singer, the carol singing. Uh, yes. And then halfway through, the, the, a few seconds later, he realised, oh, he's homeless. And he's like, and you just think, you just thought, ooh, that's, yeah. a, bit, that's a bit weird. I mean, the first time I saw it, I, I didn't notice it was the same guy, but now I think, yeah, actually, that is the same guy. Um, yeah. 
And it, I mean, it, it all works out in the end. I don't want to spoil it alert. <laughs> but, uh... He dies. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a long time after the film. <laughs> sugarcoat that but no, it's, uh, You just thought, ooh, ooh it's a bit, a bit yeah. close to the... Yeah. I, I suppose it's, it's, it's all part of educating kids about all that sort of stuff exists. And I think that is... You've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, this, this is by no means the best version, is what I'm trying to say. And I think that if you if you're kind of an older viewer and you've seen it a few times you might or you've seen bits of it a few times yeah. and you're not a fan of the muppets in general you might get a bit irritated by it mm -hmm. but it, but as a kind of very solid adaptation which is like i say a use certificate so there's nothing in it which is going to be overtly frightening or creepy and as a way of introducing children to that story and it does like i say do the message of the story rather well it, it works as an all-rounded effort, and it, I think there's a good reason why it's kind of always turned up on television, because it's a, a good, solid, reliable source of entertainment, which is a bit rough around the edges mm -hmm. and cheaply made, but as an adaptation, it just works, and I really enjoy it, and I see it every year. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's one to look at. It, it'll definitely be on one of the channels uh, this week. Yeah, it'll be, it's, I think it's either on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, mm -hmm. but, you know, get your radio times, other magazines are available, but not as good, <laughs> which is becoming a catchphrase <laughs> for this programme. So, yeah, um, just, just get it washed, really, and, uh, it's, it's, you'll, if you haven't seen it for years, you'll watch it back and you'll find new things about it, if you've never seen it like me, it's a, it's an unearthed gem, really. Hmm. That's all I've got to say about that, really. Absolutely. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll put another song on, and then we'll be back. We're going to put forward our five favourite Christmas films. Five each. Yeah, we're not really going to... We're not going to have a heated debate. We're just going put to put them out there and uh, let you digest them, really. Yeah, why not? And uh, we'll give our recommendations. Lionheart Radio. Bit of Smiths there with Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, which I'd like to dedicate to all them people stuck in traffic jams and down the country, which I saw on the news this morning. You're doing very well to get me in the Christmas spirit, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yes. I, I will. I'll dig out a Christmas song. That's next, the yeah. song to play after. No, looking at your bank statement after New Year when you realise how much you spent. Oh no. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll play for the people stuck in cars and the people who absolutely hate Christmas for the real Scrooges of the world. <laughs> um, Humbug. And now we're going to talk. We're going to kind of just tell you about our five favourite Christmas films or films that uh, just have a, a link to Christmas as such. Uh, I will start things off with uh, my most sort of convoluted link to the thing would, would be the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The reason why it's in here for me is, one, it was released at Christmas, so it was, it was such a huge marketing thing every Christmas, and kind of like, you, you it was kind of, when I was at university, it's kind of something about, right, finish term time, watch, go to the cinema, watch Lord of the Rings, and then home for Christmas, and just kind of was the package, and then every kind of year since I've kind of watched the trilogy in like the lead up to Christmas, and I don't know why it, it's it's about goblins and orcs and death and and elves and stuff, but it just does help put me in the Christmas spirit. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't. Obviously, there aren't any avert. I mean, there are talking trees, so I suppose you could make a very tenuous link. <laughs> make yes, big tip for Christmas: if you're great cutting down your tree, make sure it's not an ant. <laughs> Otherwise, they'll be very angry and come and storm your house and tear the tower down. I mean, I'm with you on that, because they always used to come out the week just before Christmas, mm -hmm. and like December the 17th, and I remember going with a family of ours where we had a tradition of, you know, because cinema food is so, was and is so expensive, I used to have this large black 
puffer coat and he used to stuff it full of popcorn and sweets and drinks so I'd kind of wander in looking like for all the world like I put on about six stone <laughs> and then as soon as I did, right, look around get all the stuff out there for three hours fantastic if, 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 it's, if it's like one of the ushers saw you go in and come out and think oh he, he took that film hard he looks harrowed as he's come out <laughs> <laughs> yeah that whole battle of Helm's Deep thing took it out of me I can tell you yeah I mean I came out of that an old man there's bits of it you think and uh you gotta realize it's it's kind of it's there for the kids as well as bits of plots plot explained and stuff like that and there's not much of that isn't it from memory i mean i'm intending mm. to watch them again this christmas well I'm, I'm going off the extended edition ones oh, um i haven't seen the extended so editions. there might be bits that will call the same already um where do you stand on the ending of return of the king because a lot of people love the series but hate the ending whereas i think it, it's a very I thought it was. I think it was brilliant. I think I know it's basically what I'm, you get. I think you get people who are a bit, bit. I don't know. <laughs> a bit stupid, shall we say? Good. You want if, if you, it doesn't matter how long the film is. If it's done right, it's a good film. Mm -hmm. And I think people are going. Oh, I was getting a numb bum. I just want to get away. And oh, couldn't they just throw the ring in the fire? Spoiler alert. And then just say right, that's it done. And you think no, because you need to sum it up. Otherwise, the yeah. the previous twelve hours worth of film don't have the same impact. Exactly, and they, they even had to miss out a lot of stuff in that, because the whole thing in the book about the scourging of the sun and Wormtongue and Saruman, shall we say, not getting on at the mm. end. <laughs> I mean, because they had to cut loads of things out, like the Fellowship of the Ring, which is... I, I mean, I don't know which one is the best, because I love them all, but mm. there's the, a section in the Fellowship of the Ring where you've got the Tom Bombadil character, and you couldn't have put that in the film, because it's completely out of mm. kilter with the rare. But yeah, good choice, I think, yeah, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yeah, and so they, I, 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 me personally, I thought they get got better as they went on. Right. Um, just and as I say, it's, it's it's a trilogy where one stage you'd be you'd be cheering like a football fan because you'd be going when they have the mass battle scenes and when Legolas takes <laughs> on the takes on the elephant and stuff like that, you just think uh, brilliant. And then other times you've, it just brings a little tear to the eye when like Sam goes, "I can't carry the ring, but yeah. I can carry you." The and thing just, I like best about it in many ways is the fact that I mean. The, the Tolkien book is is very kind of a dark and cerebral because it's about I mean because Tolkien you know, served in the First World War fought, was writing it mm -hmm. during the Second World War and it is about the idea of he went on record many times as saying the ring represents the machine you know, mm -hmm. the kind of what man would be if he didn't have emotions and I like because because Peter Jackson comes from a kind of horror comedy background I mean a bad taste in brain dead and mm -hmm. meet the feebles which is a parody of the Muppets although that's a very grisly film <laughs> it's just the idea you have these incredibly kind of portentous and very well done battle scenes and you know great scenes of emotional death but you also have like um the comedy with Merry and Pippin in the first film or the rivalry between Legolas and Gimli like there's the moment in the uh, in the Battle of Helm's Deep where it's panning along the battlements and you've seen them already mm -hmm. and then you just see the top of Gimli's helmet and he goes oh you could have picked a better spot <laughs> there's a bit as well where uh, he goes Aaron he goes he goes it's, it's, it's a long jump and he goes he goes toss me he goes what he goes you have to toss me. <laughs> don't, don't tell the elf. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously links back to the first one. And goes nobody tosses it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's got it's got it's got a bit of everything really. And yeah. I say I would recommend watching it in little chunks rather than you couldn't do all three in a day because you would no. kind of go a bit crazy. But one a day is one day is fine. Yeah, one a day. So I do it over a long weekend. Yeah. And you're gonna Christmas have Day, Boxing Day, twenty seventh. You're gonna have plenty of time off this uh, Christmas, so get yeah. into it. And what about you, Daniel? Okay, I'm gonna do mine in reverse order because I got a kind of five to one. And um, I've tried to do a kind of mix of directly Christmas and tenuously. And the first one is a tenuous link. It's Eyes Wide Shut, the last film by the late great Stanley Kubrick. Have you seen Eyes Wide Shut? Mm, I've seen. That <laughs> sounds dodgy if I say I've seen bits of it because of the content of the film, but yeah. I, I've tried to watch it, couldn't get into it. Now, it's one thing you flick on halfway through and you see if you can get into it, just no. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll 
It's a long <laughs> film, isn't it? It's two and a half hours. Yeah. So it's, you know, compared to Barry Lyndon, it's quite short, but <laughs> Barry Lyndon's a magnificent piece of work and, you know, for very <laughs> different reasons. It, I will put my hands up and say right away, it's not my favourite Kubrick film, it's not Kubrick's best film, and it does run out of steam in the last half hour. I mean, then there was always, <clears throat> but it, it's, the link with it is, with Christmas is that a lot of scenes do take place at Christmas. Basically, if you haven't seen the film, is it's a kind of sexual, psychological thriller slash erotic drama in which you have Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who were still actually married at that point, uh, play Bill and Alice Hartford, who, uh, Bill's a psychiatrist and Alice is, is his, uh, stay-at-home wife. They're a married couple living in Manhattan. Um, they're at a Christmas party and he, it's, uh, he suspects, uh, that she has been cheating on him with someone else. So he kind of goes on a sexual odyssey through New York. You know, he has an encounter with, um, uh, with a call girl, he eventually gets invited to this mask ball where there's all kind of manner of strange stuff going on. And I know what you're thinking, what is that Christmas film? And it is an 18th certificate, so you, you mm. do see quite a lot of stuff. And I'm not going to use any other word, but I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. Stuff is a good word. Yes, some stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff happens on screen, and it happens slowly and no poetically, but no. The thing about it is, I mean, we're talking about films which have a kind of Christmas setting but not necessarily to do with Christmas, but it is actually a quite interesting film from a moral point of view, because it is a kind, it's interesting, there was a book um, written a couple of years ago, I think it was called Kubrick's Mirror, in which somebody was basically taking the thesis of Kubrick, whenever he was making a film, was taking something which society had kind of embraced, and holding a mirror up against it and saying, actually, are you sure you want to do this? So there's a famous mm. thing in uh, the ending of Doctor Strangelove, where you've gone through 90 minutes of laughing your head off at the absurdity of war, and then suddenly, all these nuclear bombs go, and you think, oh, or, um, for instance, in uh, Full Metal Jacket, where you see the, you, you laugh for the first 45 minutes of these guys being built up, and you think, yeah, go in, kill the gooks, and so forth, and yeah. then they get their lives ripped apart, and you think, actually, war is a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. It's not like I didn't know that already, but it was presented <laughs> in such a real way. And the thing about Ice White Shadows is it's a very interesting argument for monogamy, essentially, and about how important family is, and that life isn't all about um, physical pleasure and sexual titillation, and it isn't just about getting laid. And, it, I mean, it does that in a rather kind of, it's, it does that in a, a more sort of subtle, understated fashion than a kind of, you know, I feel like basic instinct, mm -hmm. which basically says, stay away from women with ice picks or else, <laughs> and that's about it, the limit of its morality. But I think in terms of an alternative Christmas film, if you have the patience for it, and you, you should check it out. Because I mean, certainly, I think that Tom Cruise hasn't done anything that good in quite some time. Mm -hmm. Not even did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't even keep that argument up. Less than about that, the better. <laughs> Next choice for me is Bad Santa. It's kind of like an alternative take on Christmas in that you've got this Billy Bob Thornton, he's a drunk, he dresses up as Santa every year with the help of his little mate, uh, I'm sure I can get away with that, can't I? Yeah. <laughs> and they rob Christmas stores after everyone's gone home and stuff like that. He's a hard drinking, like, sex addict type person, very similar to what he was <laughs> earlier in his life, Billy Bob Thornton, when he was knocking about with Angelina Jolie, and it's just... Was uh, he the one where they wore their, each other's blood in vials yeah, on their neck? that's right, yes. yeah, that's, that, that's kind of, well, it's, it was it. Apparently. It was, I mean, it's it weird and stuff like that, but... It did wonders for her career, because <laughs> something like that got people talking about her. Uh, if so, she ever wins another Oscar, I'd like to thank Billy Bob Thornton for his blood. <laughs> I'd like to thank Brad. It's, um, and it's, it's, it's really bad taste, uh, but it's got a little bit of heart in it as well, but not too much that over, overdoes it. And it's got, it's got a nice happy ending, and it's, it's probably the only Christmas film, if we care what to say, which has a sodomy joke in it. So... Yeah. Which you're not going to say on air. No, no, no. I'm tempted, but no. <laughs> <laughs>
But so if you um if if you if you if you maybe like a bit if you all the the, the sugar coated Christmas films if you fancy something a little bit different just check this one I think Channel Five have the rights to this and they tend to show it on one of their three channels regularly. They, yeah. they showed it during the summer, which I thought was brilliant scheduling. <laughs> yeah, well, the, th the cynical thing about most of the Christmas films that get released in Christmas are actually made in June. Yes, which is the most cynical thing about them. Yeah, and you've got to, and basically a Christmas film has two years worth of life because last year it was um, Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey. It's only just come out on DVD recently, so it just gets, you get two Christmases worth out of it. Yeah. But, Emma, uh, what about you? Uh, my number four is Die Hard. Quite obvious choice, but it's still great. I mean, I, the Die Hard series is kind of a roller coaster because they have the first one, which is the best. Then you get the second one, which is also set at Christmas, where it's in the airport, and it's the whole thing of how can the same stuff happen to the same guy twice? <laughs> stuff is just going to be the all-purpose you know, <laughs> substitute for it, whatever expletives we have. Like um, Lloyd Smurf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's coming out next year. Good grief. Uh, Katy Perry's in that. Uh, so you have the first one, which is great. Second one's in an airport, which isn't as good. Third one, I actually quite like because it's you know the whole the racial politics stuff with Samuel L. Jackson although I don't believe that Jeremy Irons is Alan Rickman's brother and then the fourth one is rubbish and it would have been better if Kevin Smith wasn't anywhere near it but it's a classic thing of it's essentially cowboys and Indians in the towering inferno you have Bruce Willis in still one of his best performances as John McClane is you know the good guy who's holed up in the apartment block because he's come to visit his um wife whom he's separated from because they're separated not divorced aren't they yeah at this stage they're gonna give it one another go because they're but they are a bit angry yeah. at each other once <laughs> no john mcclane saves her from being no kidnapped by terrorists i think he said yeah you deserved another chance you know but uh, many women would be so forgiving <laughs> so there was th so there's that you've also got alan rickman in the performance that made him a hollywood star i mean certainly without this you wouldn't have his turn in prince of thieves i was just about to say which one was first i'm not sure die hard was first yeah, and then yeah. prince of thieves was about three years later but you've got that there's just a wonderful Christmas way is cancelled. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, there's just that wonderful... It's just that wonderful way that Alan Rickman has a speaking where even when it's, he's doing a line in the delivery that if he, anyone else did it, it would be completely hamming it up. Mm. If John Malkovich did some of his lines, you'd think, John, turn it down a bit. <laughs> it's just that he can speak through gritted teeth and sound so sinister. It's like, mm. now I have a machine gun. <laughs> how, how... How? <laughs> and you think, I mean, it is a pantomime villain, but done in such a kind of convincing and interesting sort of way. And um, there's, of course, that um, the scenes where he's, I mean, because he, he is actually a very good accent. There's a accent actor. There's a um, scene, of course, when um, he's running around in the tunnels and he runs into John McClane and he pretends to be American. Mm -hmm. And he does that very convincing. I mean, that might explain why he got the Prince of Thieves gig after that, because, you know, thought, we need someone who can do Robin Hood in an American accent. We've got Kevin. Is Alan busy? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, it's, it's, it's good fun, nuts and bolts. I mean, John McTiernan's a very good action director. It, it was an 18 when first released, but I think it's now been downgraded to a 15 because mm -hmm. it only got an 18 for its language. Because the violence, I mean, there's a lot of bullets going off, but you don't get the sort of thing in total recall of blood spewing There's everywhere. a lot of yippee-ki-yay, isn't there? Yes, yippee-ki-yay, <laughs> stuff, stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to say, because um, my friend Graham was going to be here, but, but the weather has beaten him, and that was one of his choices he had down as well, Die Hard. Good man. I have to say, personally, I'm going to be controversial, I'll say, I, out of all four, I prefer the second one. Well, that's all, I mean, it's, it, the second one's more stylish, I'll mm -hmm. give you that. Um, and I like William Sadler, who plays the villain, because he's in both Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, and he's hitting mm -hmm. both of those, so, well, fair enough. Yeah. Just thought I'm a bit, a bit controversial there. <laughs> um, my next one is Scrooged, which is another take oh, on the Christmas Carol uh, thing. It's, I, I just I remember, I remember 
watching it for years and years when I was little, because obviously Bill Murray was like God when I was little because of Ghostbusters, um, and Groundhog Day and stuff like that. You're gonna differ on that because I can't stand Ghostbusters. Yeah, but I, I think, <laughs> I, I don't think the films are brilliant, but when I was a young kid, I wanted to be a Ghostbuster. And that was, and it's a bit like the, the He-Man film and stuff like that. They're not brilliant, but <laughs> at the time when you're little, it's like... Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella. Yeah, it's like someone's emptied out my head and put it on, on TV, which is, for a six-year-old kid, brilliant, but... <laughs> uh, so, it's, yeah, it's, he's just... The only thing I would, It's just like, he's just a really, really bad man, really, in this... Uh, there's, there's a famous scene where he's on about uh, stapling, uh, reindeer, stapling antlers uh, to a little uh, mouse because <laughs> it won't stay on, so just staple them on. Um, but it's got a lot of heart in it as well. It's uh, some really freaky ghost in it as well. The only thing I'll say is it does, it's a bit of a slow burn. I thought it did, watching it back recently, it did take a while to kick in, because with these films, you, you're just waiting for the ghost as such. You've got to set up, set the character up and uh, make him be a bit of a bad man and whatnot, but it, it, did, it did take a bit too long to get there, but once it got there, it was, it was brilliant. Yeah, and it's directed by Richard Donner, isn't it, who made the first two Superman films and the Lethal Weapon ones? Mm -hmm. Which brings us nicely on to my third choice, which is the first Lethal Weapon film. Um, good choice. Yeah, like I say, directed by Richard Donner, who is a very good action director. The film which kind of... Because Mel Gibson, at that point, because he, he, he'd done the first three... He'd done Mad Max, and he'd done The Year of Living Dangerously with Peter Weir, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later because of The Way Back. Um, but this was the film that kind of made him a proper mainstream star in America at any rate. And uh, it's the classic thing of it takes the odd couple scenario from the odd couple, which had been run through in a lot of previous films, and basically cemented what we now consider to be the modern buddy film. So you have Danny Glover as the uh, the very cautious, careful policeman who's about to retire. Who's getting too old for this stuff. Yes, <laughs> too old for this stuff. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's actually, if you watch the trailers for Lethal Weapon, where they've actually blown that out, so it says, oh, I'm too old for this, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, didn't get the dub quite right on that one. <laughs> so you have him as the old guy, you've got Mel Gibson as the, the, the live wire, essentially someone who is really good at his job, but also completely insane and has no regard for his own life. I mean, I think the first time you see him, he tries to kill himself by putting a bullet to his head and he can't pull himself, bring himself to pull the trigger. And it's the classic thing of, it's two guys, you know, you root for one or root for the other, which side you come down on, is he being reckless, is he being careful, you've got, there are things in it which are indulgent, like you've got uh, the martial arts sequence at the end where Mel Gibson's trying to wrestle someone to death with his legs, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's, it goes on for a bit, shall we say, and you've also, it's also notable for the fact you've got the villain played by Gary Boosie, who's most famous for playing Buddy Holly in the Buddy Holly story, and it is that kind of thing of, you've got a guy with peroxide hair and a massive gappy teeth running around with a machine gun, and I don't quite believe in that. <laughs> but it's, if you just, like you say, switch off, it's a good, solid film, and there are lots of funny scenes with Mel Gibson running around with that massive hair. Yeah, it's, it's, it just, it kind of harks back, now, nowadays, action films are, like, mostly have a superhero in it, or Transformers and stuff like that, and it's, it just, a good old-fashioned action film, that's well, old-fashioned, but you know what I mean, it's, it's just, that and, like, Die Hard, they're just Yeah, the Shane Black dialogue is really good. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, my next choice is Rocky IV. Which, uh, doesn't really... Is that the one with the robot in? Um, <laughs> I think it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll not mention... We'll, we'll gloss over that. Basically, um, it's... It, it's not a film you'd ever sit down and go, what'll put me in the Christmas spirit? That's Rocky Rock knocking ten bells. Let's watch people thumping <laughs> each other. Um, it's, it's a weird one. It's the one Apollo Creed dies at the start because... Ivan Drago can punch people so hard that they die that they uh, just break. <laughs> they just stop living because he punches them that hard. Um, 
And uh, fact, the, the first half hour is just that set up Rocky can't fight anymore because he's he got such a beating and stuff like that. And <laughs> and it's just it, after that it, it does become essentially a music video <laughs> where he's training out because he he fights uh, Drago on Christmas Day, hence my tenuous link to this film. Um, and he's training in the the wilds of Russia, and he doesn't want. He, he, Drago's got all the the equipment and the, the like scientific stuff. He's just punching logs and like running through the snow and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's just, and it does become like as I say, just a long uh, like montage thing. And then it's got a great fight. And then uh, Rocky ends the Cold War single handedly. Yeah, because there is that scene <laughs> where people start where all the Russians start cheering for Rocky, <laughs> and you think. If wouldn't happen. They'd all be sent off to, you know, they'd all be sent to the gulag or whatever. If I can change, <laughs> then you can change. <laughs> As they say in Zeus and Roxanne, if a dog and a dolphin can get on, why can't we? <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's my choice. How about you? No, my, my number two choice is Brazil, Terry Gilliam's best film still, despite the fact that I love 12 Monkeys. I think The Adventures of Baron Munchausen is completely nuts, but in a brilliant way. Mm -hmm. And Bruce Willis gives one of his best performances in 12 Monkeys. The story is it, it was originally going to be called 1984 and a half and it's essentially a comedy take on well sort of comedy take on the George Orwell book where you have um uh, a man played by Jonathan Price whose name I, I think his name called what's his name his name's Sam Lowry which brings us back sort of to Muppet Christmas Carol because I was saying that, that was like an L.S. Lowry painting obviously no relation he plays a guy working for the Ministry of Information Retrieval which you know links to the Ministry of Information in mm -hmm. 1984 uh, there is a guy called uh, Harry Buttle who gets arrested the, the tenuous link with Christmas is that it, the first scene of it takes place on Christmas mm -hmm. when you've got a family celebrating the, the Buttle family celebrating and uh, they've got the tree all around and his daughter says, Daddy, we haven't got a chimney. How will Santa Claus uh, come down and bring us presents? And at that second, a hole is drawn in the ceiling and bam, the special forces <laughs> come down and, get, and capture him because of a typing error. Because they've been essentially trying to get hold of this guy called Harry Tuttle, who's played by Robert De Niro, who's mm -hmm. you know, this, this plumber who is going to save the world, and they go off and get the wrong guy. And it's a really fantastic film, quite apart from the fact that it was made when Gillian was in his prime as a filmmaker, before he started falling in love with CGI, before he fell out with the Weinsteins and made the rubbish Brothers Grimm, which was just all over the place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, I, thought, I thought you were going to say you quite liked it. No, it's, it's, I want to want it, because like, I really like Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, and you just thought, oh, it could have been better. Yeah. It, sh it should have been better. Yeah, there's something about... I mean, I like Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, so I'm no, much more agnostic about that. Anyway, the thing with Brazil is that it... it, it it, it is dark in terms of its subject matter. I mean, it's Gilliam, so there is a kind of very dark, playful sense of humour about it. I mean, there, there is the famous thing of, um, there are two endings to it, and if you're happy by the time you end it, you've seen the wrong version. But there are just some wonderful things in it. It's, it's a kind of film which looks at the aspect of not just Christmas, but the whole consumer society and plays it so turned up to 11. There's the thing about um, Sam Lowry's mother who is having endless plastic surgery on her face and there's a scene in one of Sam's nightmare sequences where Jim Broadbent, playing her doctor, <laughs> has kind of stretched her face about six feet from end to end. And you say, that's creepy, but in a way that I'm enjoying it. There are also fantastic fantasy elements in it where if you're kind of slightly younger, although I think it's a 15 certificate, so if you're a young at heart 15-year-old, mm -hmm. you'll think that you know, the moment where the monster come out of the walls or where Sam is flying through the air rescuing damsels on these metal wings mm -hmm. which is a brilliant fantasy and better than anything in Time Bandits and it's it puts you in a festive mood but it just kind of gives you that sting in the tail really well and it's brilliantly made you say I only watched this uh, it'll be what, September, October this year I'd never seen it before mm -hmm. and I found it a tough watch 
in like I didn't find it. I didn't think I couldn't say it was enjoyable. I'll be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I mean it's a film with brainwashing in. Yeah, and it's, um, plastic surgery and uh, Robert De Niro turning into loads <laughs> of newspapers. I think the um, when the female character whose name name escapes me, I thought the scenes where where she's in, I thought that just kind of added just sort of a bit zest to it and just livened it up a bit. Because I don't know, I, I, I just as I say, I wouldn't say it was. I say the first first half hour or so when he's just because it, it, it's set as it's said to be like in a nineteen eighty four sort of thing and it's yeah. just such a depressing. Have you seen Twelve Monkeys? Yes. Do you think it's more downbeat than that? Because that's very downbeat. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think in terms of a, of, a, of a sit down film, I think Twelve Monkeys is maybe an easier watch because it's just straight through as this maybe maybe it just required me to do a bit too much thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know how much you hate thinking. That's why you're thinking. hosting this program and I'm doing all the work. <laughs> That's not true. Controversial. That's not true. I take it back. Proof that I am thinking is the fact that I have the greatest Christmas film of all time as Which my number is? one, Home Alone. Okay, you're slightly forgiven. It's just brilliant. It's seriously. I say when I, I this came out, I was I was a young lad, and we, it, we a number of times used to rent it from um, from Video World and Amble, and then when we got a video and just got it on DVD, it's something that whatever format it, it comes in, I will get it in. It's the sort of thing when you literally think, I wish I would get burgled by, but <laughs> and so I could set so I could set traps on and stuff like that. It's ridiculously far fetched that. Uh, that like I mean this because I think Homeland One Two basically Homeland Two is just a, like kind of a, a remake of the first one but set somewhere different because yeah. there's, there's the elements from Number One are just just used again. Yeah, there is one good moment in the second one where um, Macaulay Culkin comes out of the hotel and he sees Joe Pesci and Joe Pesci holds up the hand, which is yeah. <laughs> although that is slightly kind of you know Raiders of the Lost Ark where the guy comes in and holds where it's hit, hit the the medallion thing has been mm. branded into his hand. Yeah, there's um I mean the. In, in just a, I'll jump between two because I, I, I treat them kind of as the same thing because they are. Um, Tim Curry in the second one is outstanding as well. Where <laughs> the, the mother is uh, ripping in him because like that she's uh, wanting to know how how did they let a little child check into a hotel room and stuff like that? And she goes, "What kind of idiots have you got?" And he goes, "The finest idiots in all New York." <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. And then they, like it's a bit where he, uh, he sneaks in to check the room, and then he has like the Macaulay Culkin has the clown dancing, and then he was like chases Tim Curry out of the room and stuff like. That. And Tim Curry just has that miserable put upon look on his face. It's just brilliant. And as I say, the f the first one, second one, it's. It's, it's it's people getting hit in the face with paint cans and stuff like that and throwing bricks at people, but I love it. I, I'm just brilliant. <laughs> Certainly the best thing Chris Columbus has made. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of him in general, but I I think he did hit the right notes with that one. And I, I, if I, if it's on when I'm you know not falling asleep with a stomach full of turkey, I'll probably see it again. Yeah, it's that's that's my, that's my recommendation. I'm sure everyone has seen it by now, but if not, I suppose there's another generation of kids come up. Get yeah. them, let them watch it, it's brilliant. It might go a bit crazy with guns and start throwing irons at you, stuff like that, but that, that's, no, that's nothing. As long as they don't <laughs> attach a, a blowtorch to the door so that you get your hair burnt off as you come in, I think you're safe. Yeah. So, what about you? For your so, you, one? you've kind of chosen a very kind of conventional, light hearted one, and, and good for you because it is a good film. Um, I'm going to end on a slightly more unconventional note, although it is probably the most close to Christmas one. It's Whistle Down the Wind, which is the debut film by Brian Forbes, who is a great, a great English screenwriter. I think he wrote the screenplay for the 70s version of The Railway Children, but I'm not sure about that. Produced by Richard Attenborough. The story is it takes place on uh, Lancashire Moor in the, uh, the early 60s, and you have um, 
A mother and father, a father played by Bernard Lee, who was um, M in the Roger Moore, James Bond films, you know, did loads and loads and loads of them. And uh, the eldest daughter, played by Hayley Mills, who would later become, who was effectively the Lindsay Lohan of her day, you know, did the original versions of The, the Parent Trap and so forth, mm. when, when she was a bit older. But So there, there's three children growing up on this kind of, um, more in Lancashire, um, they've got a uh, you know, kind of uh, stable where there's uh, loads of animals growing up, and eventually, and one day they they're having a discussion about um, you know, Christmas and you know, the birth of Jesus and so forth, and they come into this barn and find this this man played by Alan Bates, who we're told has escaped from a prison and is on the run, being hunted by police, and because of a strange set of circumstances, which in the dialogue they come to believe that he is actually the second coming of Christ. And they, the whole thing plays out over the 90 minutes like essentially a whistle-stop reenactment of all the stages of Jesus' life. So you have a sequence of all the children from the local school coming to see um, Jesus in mm -hmm. inverted commas and bringing him presents. So instead of gold, frankincense and myrrh, it's a comic book with a paper hat free and they ask him to read them. And then they say, can you read us a story? So he does and that's essentially Sermon on the Mount. It's a wonderful film. I mean, it's made in black and white, so there is that kind of slightly existential flavour to it. And Alan Bates had that kind of even that, even before he kind of went all craggy and old, mm -hmm. he had that kind of very worldly worn look about him. And Bernard Lee's obviously very very good. But the thing that it's really about is it, it's a very kind of interesting retelling of the Christian story with the essential idea of if Christ came back now, would you recognise him? And he does that in such a kind of unobtrusive way that you no, know, you you have to kind of concentrate to spot all the different little bits of parable in it mm. i mean there is the famous bit at the end where the police turn up and alan bates is um holding his arms out in a in a cross mm. as he's being searched and Haley mills bursts into tears because you think actually you're going to kill him mm. and it's heartbreaking it's not the easiest watch in the world but if you haven't seen it it's a really great um film and it's a family film in a way because it's only a pg certificate and there's nothing violent in it so mm. i think if you're open-minded and you're, you're preferred to you're okay to wait for 90 minutes and you don't mind watching black and white go and see whistle down the wind because it is a really extraordinary piece of work just a quick thing on that before we run that up um i've not i've not seen this what year was it released 1961 but was it did it get create controversy at the time the whole because of you know the whole thing of putting religion in things is always an iffy area and i'm just thinking back then would it have been i think no certainly i mean it didn't get a very wide release when it first came out but it, it's <laughs> i don't think it was a problem right. i mean certainly there wasn't the same kind of political correctness that we have now um and i don't think you could make it now so to speak but mm -hmm. i think that like i say it's unobtrusive there are there are things in the story which are very prominently christian and there are religious overtones but there are i mean one of the brilliant things about it is the way that you always kind of think that the children are telling the truth, even when you know that Alan Bates isn't God. You sort of think, actually, I'd like to believe the children are true, because all the adults are kind of, they've either given up on religion or they just don't care about anything else. There's a scene where um, Hayley Mills is asking the vicar about Jesus and all he wants to talk about is who stole the guttering. And it's a very subtle way of saying, actually, that's what's wrong with the church and what's the proper meaning of Christmas. I know that sounds very cheesy, but no. it's just a wonderful way of doing sounds it. Sounds good. I'm, I've never seen that one, so I'll keep my eyes open for that one. Yeah. Check that one out. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Right, I think what we'll do then, because we've got about 20-ish minutes left, I think we've got a hell of a lot of renewed reviews to get through. Yeah, let's try and keep all of them under three minutes, shall we? Yeah, I think um, we'll just, uh... Shall we start with this week's releases and then do next week's as and when we have time? Yeah, which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with uh, Tron Legacy, because it's going to be the big one. Um, sequel to the 1982 film Tron, which was largely 
credited with starting the whole CG revolution. It actually won an Academy Award in 1996 for special technical achievement. Now, after Pixar <coughs> had come along with Toy Story and so forth and basically spearheaded that re revolution. In the original film, you have Jeff Bridges in one of his kind of early performances around the time of Starman and so forth when he was, you know, becoming a leading man in his own right. Here, in the original film, he's a software engineer who gets digitized by a special laser, goes inside the world of a computer game in a place called The Grid, and basically has to fight these programs to stop this, this rogue program who is trying to hack into the Pentagon. Mm. And, you know, essentially it's a geek's wet dream. <laughs> um, so, with this, you have his... There's a bit of backstory saying that he disappeared seven years after the events of the original film, and it's his son who's trying to get back into the grid and find him, and Michael Sheen's in it playing the kind of villain. There's two versions of Jeff Bridges now, you mm. know, one good and old, one evil, but, you no know, regenerated so that he you know, looks like Jeff Bridges when he was about 30 years old. Mm. The thing is, I mean, I like... It's a first-time director, I think, his name is Joseph Kaczynski. I mean, the original's not brilliant by any means, because, like I say, if you're not... If you're someone who doesn't care really about modems and you no know, hyperspeed and so forth, and you, it's it's kind of like it's all right and the technical stuff is fine, but it's it's the story is you no know, there's, there's potential for a good political story in there, but it doesn't really go for it. Mm -hmm. And I think from looking at the trailer and, and watching reviews of this, it, it's actually quite dull. I mean, in the sense of the the visuals are quite good. I mean, it's shot in IMAX and 3D, and you get that sense of novelty from it. But after yeah. that, you sort of think, well. There's not much else going on in this, and um, the CG on Jeff Bridges' face, I mean, it makes him look younger, but they haven't managed to sync his dialogue up properly, and I'm not really bothered. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it just looks too too showy. And yeah. that's it. From the trailer, it, you, you get a, a, a gist of the plot, and then you just see loads of people fighting and loads of weird stuff. You just think, it's not really... I don't know, it's, it's not, nothing there that would grip me. I think it's, I just want to maybe check out on DVD or something like that, or be aware, or, or, or watch, you know, at some stage, but... I wouldn't rush out to see it. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, the only thing that would possibly make me go and see it is Michael Sheen is in it playing essentially a lad insane because he's mm. dressed in exactly the same thing that David Bowie was wearing in a kind of 1973. <laughs> so if that's your bag, go and see it. Otherwise, wait, and you don't need to see it in 3D. Yes, uh, the next film, uh, do you want to do Burlesque? Which, may as which well. my friend has uh, sent her his two word review of Showgirls 2010. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that is a very good review because, no. This is the much um, anticipated by some people um, <laughs> acting debut of Christina Aguilera. Um, where do you stand on Christina Aguilera as a musician? Uh, an annoying and nuisance, and would if Britney Spears didn't exist, she wouldn't be. I'm quite surprised she's lasted so long. I would disagree. I think that because there was a famous um, concert, uh, it was at a, the Music Awards or something, where it was Madonna, Britney Spears, and Christina performing together, and there was mm. the famous lesbian kiss. And I actually think out of all the three of them, Christina is the most talented, and she's certainly got the best voice. Oh yeah, I'm not doubting that she, she's got talent. I just think in, in terms of I don't it just nothing that would I would never rush out of buying. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, say, I, I, I haven't been holding my breath waiting for that for her to make a film. <laughs> no, I mean I, I wouldn't buy any of her albums, but I'll gladly listen to her if she's on the radio. Mm. She seems like a very nice person. Uh, so it's her acting debut. The only trouble is it's starring alongside Cher. Yes. Who I <laughs> cannot stand. Do you remember that song of hers, um, Believe, which was like number oh. one for eight weeks. If I had some water, I would do a little version of it for you. And it wasn't even her singing because they kind of digitised <laughs> her voice and it's like, if you can't sing yourself, just don't try. Um, so the story, here's the thing. If you've seen Xanadu, Flash Dance, Dirty Dancing, Showgirls, Billy Elliot, Moulin Rouge, Chicago, or Nine. Mm -hmm. You've seen all of this a hundred times before. <laughs> um, 
it's because it's essentially the whole thing of she's a you know a girl with a big voice and big ambitions, but she comes from a small town and she comes to Los Angeles to seek fame and fortune, and she gets befriended by this this club owner played by Cher who runs a burlesque club, which is <laughs> slightly run down. And let's do the show here. And Stanley Tucci's playing her agent. It's like surely you could have come up with something a tad more original. Yeah. And if you've seen the trailer for it, all the the dance sequences in it, I mean. It, they just look like the sort of thing Rob Marshall could have done with his eyes shut. And I'm not a Rob Marshall fan by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Nine is pants, frankly. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's, it's particularly the scenes with Fergie in, where it's just, you no, know, it's like, Italian. It's like, no, I'd rather not. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I do, I, I'm a big fan of Daniel Day-Lewis, and you just think, oh. <laughs> what were you that <laughs> Yeah, that film is an excuse to go and watch There Will Be Blood Again, although that's not brilliant by any means. I do like that film, mate. It's good. The, the milkshake speech is brilliant, but I think the, the rest of the film kind of collapses around his performance. <laughs> so, the, his, the thing with Burlesque is it's, it's po-faced, it's naff, it's not very original. I think Christina Aguilera's performance is fine, but it's not exactly... It's a bit like Justin Timberlake's early performances, where he would you know, play like a rapper, or he'd play mm -hmm. a gangster. Like, yeah, it's a real stretch. Now, why don't you go off and play a brain surgeon and show us what you can really do? Or, and then obviously mm -hmm. he's redeeming himself with the social network. So, I think don't go and see this. I mean, Cher doesn't need any more money. She still, I still haven't forgiven her for winning that Oscar for Moonstruck, which is totally undeserved, <laughs> um, and shows the Oscars have no taste at all. It's, but, it's just, a, it's a wonder though, because Christian Aguilera, she's been on for about ten years, easy ten years, something like that. Yeah. She must have been offered film script after film script after film script. Why did she go, I'm going to make this one? What? It, it, it I think she's probably really. been busy, so from anything else. Yeah, but even, I mean, I'm not, a, not the greatest example, but even Britney Spears made Crossroads when she, in between her... Do hours. not mention that abomination I've never of seen that ever again. Have you seen it? Have you sat Bits through it? Bits of it. I sat through <laughs> ten minutes on television <laughs> once and almost had to... <laughs> strangle myself. So, I mean, I mean, the, the closest thing I would say, I mean, I, th I think it's interesting, it's a bad idea perhaps to start off with a starring role, because if you look at um, Kylie Minogue, when she was in Moulin Rouge, very briefly, because she plays the manifestation of Absinthe, the Green Fairy, and that's actually quite a good performance, but it's good because it's like a fleeting two-minute cameo, which is quite enjoyable and light-hearted. Yeah. I mean, I, that Moulin Rouge is a great film, don't get me wrong, I included it in that list as a kind of example of how you do that sort of thing properly, mm -hmm. um, but Burlesque is just... Rubbish. No reason to see it. <laughs> what do you want to do next? We've got a catfish. Let's Fred do cat, the movie. Let's do catfish and say Fred for for last in this section. Uh, catfish is a documentary, and there's been some debate as to whether or not it's faked. There was a story that Morgan Spurlock, who's the guy who made uh, Super Size Me, mm -hmm. came out of it and said to the director that is the best mockumentary I've ever seen, and the director reportedly slapped him, saying, how dare you, because it's <laughs> real. So the story is, you have a photographer who becomes Facebook friends with a woman called Megan, and they eventually extend their relationships to their family, and the whole, and the way that it's shot is, it, it's, it's done supposedly in real time, so you have this guy becoming Facebook friends with someone, and the camera is always sort of following him around, and, I mean, I don't want to give, there is a twist involved, and I don't want to give it away in case people do want to go and see it, but suffice to say, not everyone is as they seem. <laughs> What, what are your thoughts on this? Because I saw you've done a bit of prep. Yeah, um, just, obviously, I, I was just saying, just, just quite surprising that we get two Facebook films in one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously the social network is probably the better. I mean, certainly yeah. if this does turn out to be fake, then... Mm -hmm. It's gonna be. It's, it'll be. Li it's gonna be like the I'm not the I'm still here thing. I was gonna say I'm not there, but that's the Todd Haynes. Because <laughs> the whole thing with I'm still here was, um, no, is it a fake or isn't it? And as soon as the as soon as Casey Affleck came out and said, actually, yeah, we faked the whole thing. He did it just as it was being released, which was such bad timing. Yeah, should I have mean, done it two years later or something like that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if if Christopher Nolan's not going to give away the ending of Inception, yeah. not that I want him to, because that's the whole point of the yeah. film and it's brilliant. 
then surely you could have waited. I mean, I think that, you no, know, they did it largely as damage limitation because they thought that Joaquin Phoenix genuinely wasn't going to have a career. Mm -hmm. But after he made that revelation, it's like, yeah, well, what's the point then? It's like, you know, if we know that The Last Exorcism is fake, what's the point of seeing it? Yeah, why should I give you £7 for, what, essentially you and your mate messing about for the past two years? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and as Gareth Edwards demonstrated, you can now make those films for, you know, halfpenny, so... True. Right, Fred the Movie. Which is Let's not Based on a two-minute YouTube clip. Uh, I think the only reason it's probably getting... As, I can't say as much of this, it's as, uh, getting a big release over here and stuff is probably because Pixie Lot's in it. Yeah. Um, um, it's it's the real-life name is something like... It's da not Daniel Cruikshank, he's the guy who hosts Coast. I think it's it's, it's Mr. Cruikshank, who is a 17-year-old kid from America. Apparently, there was a, a frightening statistic on uh, the radio yesterday saying that he is one of the most viewed comedians of all time, because his channel has something like 96 million views, and he is the most-watched comedian among teenagers. Yeah, not really warranted, is it? <laughs> no, so the story... Story. And there's no most point, because essentially, if you've seen the Fred clips on YouTube, and I've seen a couple of them, um, it's essentially a guy who's having his voice altered by pitch correction technology to make it sound like he's on helium or to make it sound like essentially he's hyperactive. Mm -hmm. And those sort of things, so he kind of turns about saying, Hey, my name's Fred and I'm doing this in a tree and so on. And you think, okay, I can take about two minutes of that because <laughs> I know that eventually this video is going to stop or it's going to stop to load a bit more so mm -hmm. I can take a break. But spending 90 minutes with that character <laughs> is the least attractive proposition uh, since being stuck in a lift with someone on a sugar high, regardless of their age. And just, I mean, we were talking about um, Jackass 3D a few weeks back where you were saying, no, there's no reason to go and see it in cinemas. The polystyrene hand clip is already up on YouTube. Yeah. Just go and watch that on a loop. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, if you can't stand the original videos, why would you even consider going to see it? Exactly. I but think there, what, sorry, the I one just, last, so you're going for your last point. There, there was one point made by, I mean, it's been condemned by the critics. I mean, that's kind of predictable because most critics are middle-aged and quite, you know, grumpy people. And I speak as someone who's incredibly grumpy and acts like he's middle-aged. <laughs> but there was one critic who said it was essentially a kind of, a quite clever postmodern take on the whole voyeuristic me thing. Mm -hmm. And then loads of, and then he actually retracted that, saying, "Actually, I was being completely facetious in its pants." <laughs> so I think even if you try and approach it as a kind of knowing thing, it just doesn't work. Right. Um, now follow me, as because we're not going to be here for the next two weeks. So I thought we'd give you the other re other releases, which will happen out coming out Christmas Eve, Boxing Day, because it's big time for for, yeah. for film releases. We've got ten minutes left. I think we'll start with uh, the way back. Yeah, new film by Peter Weir, who is a fantastic director, made things like um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Gallipoli, which is another great Mel Gibson film, uh, Witness, Dead Poet Society, The Truman, Truman Show. Show. Yeah. yeah, which is one of the best, still one of the best films of the nineties. I saw that again less than 12 months ago, and it just holds up so well, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Uh, last film we made was Master and Commander with uh, Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, um, and I think they were actually very good together on screen. It was kind of a, a collaboration made in heaven, despite the fact that at the end they're clearly not playing their instruments. Mm -hmm. um, so this is his first film in seven years. It's based on a memoir by a guy called Slavomir Ravich called The Long Walk, and it's the story of you have a group of prisoners who break out of a Siberian gulag in 1942, so during the Second World War, and they choose to escape to British India by walking essentially all the way across Siberia, across Mongolia, and then all the way to the Indian border. So you have a, a great cast of Jim Sturgis, who was the lead in Philip Ridley's Heartless. He was, you probably know him best from Across the Universe, the Beatles film. Was he in 21? 
Oh, I think there's some other guy. Oh, uh, he might have been. I haven't seen that film. That's, right. that's the Kevin Spacey yeah. casino film, isn't it? Um, so he, he's in it. Colin Farrell is in it, and Colin Farrell is he's kind of on a roll at the moment. I mean, London Boulevard was all right, mm -hmm. and Crazy Heart, in which he could actually do accents pretty well, and he plays a Russian in this. You've got Mark Strong in it, uh, Saoirse Ronan, who is uh, recently in Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones and is shaping up to be a really interesting actress. And mm -hmm. um, it, it, and Ed Harris, of course, who was in The Truman Show, and I think he was actually... Oscar nominated for that performance. I don't know. Was did he? I think he was supporting actor. For, yeah, supporting no. actor, because mm -hmm. he plays. Um, oh, what's the name of his character? The one who, who's controlling the TV station. Like creator or something like that. Yeah, it begins up. with G or something. But uh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, effectively he is God, but uh, no, because we're Christmas, we don't want to drift too far into blasphemy. Ed Harris is God. <laughs> and that's the end of it. So you have a situation where it is. I mean, can, we, is, can we say Danny Dyer is Satan then? <laughs> If yeah. you like, yeah. yes. Yeah, we'll if, we're, if we're waiting, <laughs> if we're dipping our toe into blasphemy, we may as well just dash straight in <laughs> to the deepest part. Um, so, I mean, it is essentially a road movie, and it is going to be tough in the sense that you have, like a lot of Peter Weir's films, like like Witness, like Gallipoli to some extent, you have characters in extremis and trying to, you know, struggling not just against the company of others, but against the environment that they're in. Mm -hmm. um, but there's that really harrowing scenes in Gallipoli where Mel Gibson is walking along asking for people's water bottles, and then he meets two guys who are kind of hiding on a cliff, and he says, how long have you been here? He said, no, a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, why haven't you moved? And the guy sticks his boot out and they get shot. And it's that's really kind of, you know, okay, moving you're dead sort of thing. How are you going to react to that? Mm -hmm. But I think that... <laughs> If you want something after Christmas, uh, having sat through the kind of light-hearted Christmas fair like you No know, Home Alone and Lethal Weapon and so forth, you no know, stuff where you don't have to switch on a lot, mm -hmm. you no know, stuff for you know, letting the Christmas turkey go down. If you want to go to the cinemas and see something which is actually going to engage you, then the way back is probably it. I mean, I think any Peter Weir film is worth seeing. I don't know what its kind of buzz it's got in terms of Oscar nods yet. I mean, obviously it's early days, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be surprised because he's been nominated for Best Director something like seven times, Peter Weir. So I think eventually one day. This might be the one that wins it for him, but uh, only time will tell. Yes. Um, what else? Should we do? do you want to do Gulliver's Travels? Yeah, let's do Gulliver's Travels, and then we'll heap together um, little stuff and <laughs> uh, love and other drugs if we have time. Gulliver's Travels, new take on the novel by Jonathan Swift with uh, Jack Black, directed by Rob Letterman, who made Monsters vs. Aliens and Shark Tale, which, um, you know... <laughs> Also featured Angela Jolie, although it's not a very good film. She's okay in it. But yeah. no. So the story is, um, Jack, you know, the original story is you have a guy called Lemuel Gulliver who is, because um, in the original book from memory, he's a, he's in a mental institution or an asylum, and he's telling he's about to be tried for you know, being insane and uh, sent. I think either sent to Australia or being hanged. I can't remember mm -hmm. what the penalty was. And he's telling about his adventures in flashbacks. So he goes to the land of Lilliput where he's massive and the people are tiny. Then there's another land where he's tiny and the people are massive. And then there's all sorts... Basically, it's adventures and it's, um, it's... Jonathan Swift wrote it as a kind of sprawling social satire and at the end it turns out that his stories were actually true. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember seeing the television version of this with the guy who was the barman out of Cheers playing the title role. Do you remember uh, that? Oh, Ted Danson. Ted Danson, yeah. that's it. And that was very, very good. Particularly the way that they did the kind of, um, the animated tiny sheep at the mm -hmm. end, which is the thing that proves that it wasn't a, just a dream. Here's the thing, now, Jack Black is, he's a charming enough screen person, and they do this one as essentially he's a travel writer who ends up in Lilliput. Yeah. And the second I knew this wasn't going to be my sort of thing is that the Queen of Lilliput is played by Catherine Tate. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> my reaction, exactly. And... See, Billy Connolly's in it, and you think, oh, Billy Connolly's good, but you think, oh, Catherine Tate. Have you seen The Man Who Suit God? That's all right. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so... 
here's the thing I would say about it. Have you seen, um, you must have known if you've been to the cinema recently, those orange ads which yes. feature a clip of the film. Unfortunately, I think I've seen them orange ads about 12 times. <laughs> and how funny do you think they are? They're not funny. <laughs> They're, the first time I saw it, I thought it was fine, but the, the original I'm ones, you know, like where like the, the views have been people were coming and pitch for films, like Darth Vader were coming, they were really good, but they've just they've gone off the boil recently. Yeah, and the thing, if that's how, uh, because the whole point about those orange adverts in the same way they did the thing with the A-Team ad, mm -hmm. is that it's kind of taking exactly as the film looks and then spoiling it with the product placement. Yeah. And the film doesn't look that good if you took all the orange advertising <laughs> out. I mean, I th where do you stand on Jack Black? Because I think he's someone who is occasionally good when he's reined in, like yeah. in King Kong and School of Rock. But if he does, if he's allowed to kind of branch out and do stuff like that, he just loses it. I think I've got uh, a lot of attention in the, the, the holiday film. I didn't like that. Um, but when he's in, when he's in Tenacious Day Pick of Destiny, it's just that it's that sort of stupidity. So yeah, that, that that kind of appealed to me. So did School of Rock. Um, School of Rock is great. Um, talk of School of Rock too as well, but we'll leave that one side. Uh, but yeah, I think yeah, he, I think he's still. I think my main sentence in most I think that what sums it up is they're still waiting to find the right vehicle for him after School of Rock. Yeah, he's 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 got so much potential. It's just like, what can we do with him? Well, if not all those fellas, he could always play the Yeti in the third Tintin film. That's <laughs> when they get round to making it. Could do. <laughs> yes. uh, so yeah, there's not much more to say really. I mean, the only other thing I hold against him is that film Margaret at the Wedding, made by the guy who made the Squid and the Whale, and that's a terrible film. So I think yeah, <laughs> don't. It's you no know, Boxing Day fair. It'll be in and out in a couple of weeks. If you really must go and see it, then fine. But no, I think unfortunately, if you're old enough, go and see The Way Back instead. I think unfortunately, people are probably going to see Gulliver's Travels rather than The Way Back because it's going to get so much market and backing and things that it's going to be forced on people's throats. <laughs> anyway, Love and Other Drugs, which, which is, is a romantic comedy ish. Yeah, romantic comedy drama with Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway. Both of them I'm sort of keen on. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal's the better of the two in terms of the films that he chooses, but it's based on a book called Hard Sell, The Evolution of a Viagra Salesman mm -hmm. by Jamie Reedy. So you immediately think, oh, it's going to be a racy sex comedy and it's going to be quite bawdy. Directed by Ed Zwick, who is um, a very interesting director who made things like Glory with Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. I think Denzel Washington actually won the Best Supporting Os Oscar. Yes. For that, that. yeah. Because he won Best Actor for Training Day, but this was his earlier mm -hmm. victory. Most recently made things like Blood, Diamond and Defiance. And he's a very interesting director who kind of takes big issues like, you know, the uh, the conflict diamonds trade or, um, you know, the Civil War or uh, Chechen rebellions and so forth and presents them in a very kind of mainstream action way and I think he's very interesting. The story is Jake Gyllenhaal is working in an electronic store. He gets fired from his job with first sleeping with the owner's girlfriend and that happens in the first two minutes. Uh, he becomes a pharmaceutical rep. He goes off to work for Fizzer. Other companies are available. He gets eventually given one of the first licenses to sell Viagra. And at the same time, he falls in love for the f genuinely with the only woman he's fallen in love with, which is played by Anne Hathaway. And if you see the trailer for this film, it does kind of make it out as like a very bawdy romantic comedy in the sense that there is a scene in the trailer where Anne Hathaway comes in to surprise him and takes all her clothes off and you, know, you see mm -hmm. everything from the neck up in the shot and then it turns out his best friend's in the room as well <laughs> and they all burst out laughing. But reading th through it, I mean, it, it does kind of... It's more, it kind of takes the whole thing about, um, you know, drug use and male virility and so forth. And there's a subplot about him going to a meeting about Parkinson's disease and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of these films that he's either going to, it's the question of whether they've balanced a kind of, is, is it an issue films with sex in or is it a sex film that happens to have issues mm -hmm. lurking in the background? And I think that 
once you get past the whole thing where he gets to sell Viagra, I think you'll know which kind of film it is, and it'll either be a great, it'll either be an interesting success or it'll be a kind of also run failure. So I think maybe go and see it, but be prepared to be disappointed. Yes, and the last one is Meet the Parents Three, the Little Fuckers. Yes, and they're allowed us here because they said it first. Yes, <laughs> uh, and on some of the advertising is actually called Meet the Parents Colon Little. Yes, I think it's uh, it's strange for them not to have. Uh, yeah, I think they do need to hark back to meet the parents because they, someone could just read that and go, well, "What the hell is that?" Yeah, <laughs> here's the thing: the novelty about Meet the Parents, which wasn't a great film by any means, is it was it was Robert, um, almost a Robert Downey Jr. Robert De Niro. <laughs> essentially taking the mick out of himself and doing the kind of comedy performance that he did in Analyze This and mm -hmm. Analyze That. And we've, over the last decade, where we've seen him essentially doing that self-parody thing endlessly to the point at which he's doing things like Machete, in which, he, like you said, he is rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not that exciting anymore. And when they did the sequel with Dustin Hoffman, who is irritating at points, <laughs> and Barbara Streisand, who does not deserve a film career by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> and I'm squeezing the toilet on in front of me out of rage, because <laughs> There's just no point to it, and it'll be, like I say, it might stick around for a few weeks, but there's, it won't be funny enough. I'm yeah, sure. I think it's a people say, oh, well, they had such a great time making it, and blah, 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 and they're probably really cheap to make. Yeah. Um, it'd just be the salaries to pay the actors. You think, if you enjoy, if you enjoy each other's company, just, just have a party. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, Film of the Fortnight is The Way Back, or failing that, probably Catfish. The first, the uh, cult film this week is The Muppet Chris McCarroll. It'll be on television sometime next week. The first cult film we'll talk about in the new year is Into the Night by John Landis. Right. Okay, stay tuned. Uh, we'll, after 11 o'clock, we'll just get back to the music and normal chat. And thank you very much, Daniel. Merry Christmas, Paul. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.